The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Asia 314, the Naser 117. The bill is passed. Without objection, a motion to reconsider is laid on the table. House representatives approved the debt ceiling bill, advancing it to the Senate just days ahead of a June 5th default deadline, with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy warning Democrats that he wants more cuts in the years ahead. More than two-thirds of our conference voted for it. We got all the Democrats who signed a discharge petition to say they would never raise the debt ceiling, only raise it clean. We got them to vote for it too. So think about how much further we can go. Markets slash the odds of a Fed rate hike in June after two Fed officials say they're in favor of keeping rates steady at the next meeting, but leave the door open to further hikes if necessary. 50 European leaders prepare to meet in Moldova, just 20 miles from the Ukrainian border, in a show of support to Kyiv amid hopes President Zelensky will attend. Chinese factory activity swings back to growth in May, according to a private sector survey, boosting hopes of a stronger recovery in the world's second largest economy. So, very warm welcome, everybody. Great to see you this morning. Let's focus on the debt ceiling story. The U.S. House has passed a bill to raise the debt limit and cap government spending, sending the legislation to the Senate just days before Monday's default deadline. The Fiscal Responsibility Act passed by 314 votes to 117. Uh, those in opposition to the measures comprise 71 Republicans and 46 Democrats. The measure now moves to the Democratic-controlled Senate, where leaders on both sides want to pass the bill within 48 hours. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy admitted there had been compromises. Is it everything I wanted? No. But sitting with one House, with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic President who didn't want to meet with us, I think we did pretty dang good for the American public. Let's cut more because we are in a big debt. This is fabulous. This is one of the best nights I've ever been here. I thought it would be hard. I thought it'd be almost impossible just to get to 218. Now I found there's a whole new day here. We've woken them up. Maybe they listen to our speeches. I don't know. President Biden welcomed the news, saying there had been compromises on both sides, but that the deal is good news for American people and the economy, protecting his key priorities from the past two years. He urged the Senate to pass the bill as quickly as possible to enable him to sign it into law. As far as the markets are concerned, Karen, to me, they behave like a stroppy teenager. It was a big case of whatever, whatever, we don't care. It was choppy, wasn't it? Investors are closely eyeing the debt ceiling progress, concerns around the Fed, of course, lingering. And then there's that tech sector rally that investors have been wondering whether it's uh, too much uh, at this point in time, given the lack of visibility around the profits around AI, but also a rational exuberance we've witnessed in the past when it comes to some of the big tech plays. So investors just trying to balance the narrative here. And this is how we are looking on futures today. 
slightly higher, but again, not much direction on the back of what was a weak session yesterday. We were down six tenths roughly on both the Nasdaq and the S&P 500. The Dow travelling south by four tenths of a percent. So it was a weak finish to the trading month. And I think it's been the Nasdaq that's been such a standout, still tracking high by almost six percent for the trading month. And if you're looking at uh, the negatives yesterday, well, it was that retreat in Nvidia stock that has carried the market so far forward. Funnily enough, for um, much of the last uh, decade or so, we've been closely watching the big tech names that are really encapsulated in the fangs. That has been such a key trade when you're looking at risk on risk off moves in the tech universe. These days, it stretches just a little bit wider to some of the semiconductors and the Vanek Semiconductor Index was down 2.5%, telling you perhaps about that retreat we saw as we closed out the trading month. For the month of May, though, it has been up to the tune of about 16 plus percent. Compare that to FANG stocks that have been up almost 10%. So it has just been the icing on the cake as we take a look at the AI story. In terms of treasuries, the debt ceiling issue clearly important at this point, but so too the language from Fed officials about whether there's a rate hike coming in June. Fading view around that narrative now has taken us just a little bit off on some of the trades. You can see we're at 4.43 at the two-year at this stage, the 10-year 3.66. Where you are feeling that the change in narrative here is through the dollar. We've seen that expression taking us off a two-week top on the dollar versus a number of pairs and crosses. If we can show you that board cable, for instance, and how we're tracking there this morning. The early trade on sterling dollar is a weaker one. We're 124.32, so sterling just slipping a little bit morning session. Euro is 106.80, so we're back below that 107 mark where we've been in recent sessions. Dollar supported versus the Japanese yen, also versus the yuan. So dollar is trying to, at this hour, claw back a little bit of territory. Let's take a look at what we've got on the commodities complex. WTI, Brent, both are a little bit firmer at this stage, and perhaps this is a read-in on that rate story as well. Four tens up on uh, both of these trades, roughly half of a percent, uh, slightly more on Brent. To the Asian markets, and uh, this is the state of play. We've got the Cosby weaker, but there is green elsewhere across the board from Shanghai to Shenzhen. We've got that market up nine tenths of a percent. But again, Japanese stocks, and this is where a lot of the action has been in recent weeks, back above uh, 31,100 points. So it is a firmer day of trade as the, the market scoops up 200 plus points today, Jeff. Yeah, isn't that funny? I mean, I think we called that one on Warren Buffett's uh, decision to to invest in trading companies and it seems like everybody has now climbed aboard the Japanese train. We'll have to see how that plays out but let's refocus on this rate story. As attention was trained firmly on the house the odds of a June rate hike fell sharply after two Fed officials suggested they favoured skipping a rate hike at the upcoming meeting. Fed Governor Philip Jefferson said it uh, quote would allow the committee to see more data but reiterated a skip is not a pause and Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker said he's increasingly in favour of a skip but admitted Friday's jobs data could change his mind. The futures market flipped on the comments going from a 70% chance of a hike to a 64% probability of no change. Uh, Stephen Blitz joins us, Chief US Economist at TS Lombard. Stephen, good to have you with us this morning. Can, can I just get the business of the debt ceiling out of the way here? Because the market reaction, I thought, was illuminating. We know that as far as the debt ceiling is concerned, the Treasury's own website tells us that since the 1960s, uh, the uh, debt ceiling has been uh, lifted uh, at least 78 times, and I think almost 90 times in the 20th century. Does the market reaction, which was a big 
snooze fest tell us actually that no one in the investment landscape believed that the government would not lift the debt ceiling? Well, I think that the short end of the market certainly started to price in that risk. And, uh, you know, the markets in, you know, I think we had, what, 6 7% on, on Treasury bills that were going to uh, mature around this point in time when the, when the debt default would have occurred. Uh, and so we did see some shifting in yields at the, at the, at the short end and, and some of the credit default sl- swaps went up in price. But, um, you know, and I think that was just prudence on the part of, uh, of money managers. But uh, there was never a doubt to me it was going to go up. But to a large extent, the market has to be part of this theater, uh, this political theater that gets uh, that finally sends the message to Washington and everybody gets on their high horse, makes some speeches. They all vote and they get the damn thing passed. And they did again this time. Um, I, I think politically and I know that's not the, you know, the topic to talk about here. But I, I keep wondering whether or not Biden, McCarthy, Jeffries, the, um, the Jeffries being the, the head of the Democrats in the House, are going to recognize that with a reasonable piece of legislation, uh, and there are many things to legislate on, including immigration, there's a broad middle that you can you can you can cobble together a majority. And uh, essentially render the extremes of both parties moot. And is that going to be viewed as a path forward to get some important things done rather than each leader just saying, oh, we can't go there because these five guys or these 10 votes, whatever, aren't going to come with us. That's a topic for another time, but I think it's certainly something that from a political standpoint, Uh, is worth thinking about going forward. Uh, I think that's very interesting and I I think very, very well observed and something for our audience to focus on. Let let me just broaden out the picture and talk a little bit about the connection between what we're seeing in the House then and ultimately where we're going on interest rates and the fact that we've now got a few Fed speakers who are starting to say, to use this term skip, we can skip, pause, but maybe we may need to do more down the road here. You're making an important point in your notes this morning about how you think QT is basically done here. Just explain why. Well, look, QT works, it doesn't work, depending upon what's going on with the deficit. And uh, because essentially what QT does is ask the market to fund more than the net new debt that the Treasury is raising. So this far this year, it's been really a meaningless exercise. Um, and not a, it's been a meaningless exercise because there hasn't been any really net new debt issued. Uh, and then secondly, instead of reserves and overnight repo, the two main liabilities on the Fed balance sheet running off, what's really run off has been the uh, Treasury bank account, so to speak, at the Fed. And that's been a plus. If you look at how much money's come out, and this money that's being spent by Treasury that they're not raising at the same time, either through debt or taxes, and they're just spending that money, to, obviously it's obligations to spend, and that's to the tune of about 3% of five months worth of GDP. Now we go forward, well, they're gonna fill that bank account back up, which is down somewhere under 50 billion at the moment. 
back over to probably around 600, 650 billion. And that's a lot of money to raise in a short amount of time on top of all the other debt that's got to come out. And now for the Fed to, on top of that, say, okay, you know, 95 billion a month is that runoff. Uh, that's a very uh, sharp tightening of, uh, of liquidity. We saw a bit of that in 2018 and we know what happened then. Uh, and I don't think this Fed is really, I mean, the fact that they want to skip is, is, is a vote of their saying, look, there's a lot of question marks at the economy right now. And now we're adding this one in, adding another 25 here in, in a couple of weeks versus doing it at the end of July probably doesn't make much of a difference to the course of anything. Uh, so it makes sense to wait. And I think the Fed will probably pause on QT once they see, or I should say, if they see that kind of a squeeze on liquidity. Now, of course, Treasury can extend out the time frame for when they refill the coffers. In the past, they've done it right away. They may take six, 12 months to do it. So we, we don't really know. We don't know their plan. Uh, we'll find that all out probably within uh, in the matter of weeks and, uh, and, and get a better sense of it. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Stephen, just so we've got Treasury refilling its coffers, we've got uh, concerns too in the real economy that lending standards have also tightened, uh, typical to what we would see going into a recession. What does it mean in terms of the scenarios then around some sort of a, a hard or soft landing for the U.S. economy? Well, you know, I, 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 I like to tell my clients that planes land, economies don't. Uh, it's an ongoing dynamic process. And the difference between having a recession, a deeper recession versus no recession at all, uh, really tells you whether or not they're really going to beat back this inflation back to 2% or not. Um, and, and, and I'm very fearful that if there isn't a recession, um, you know, I'll let you go back to the history books, but it's 1966, 67 all over again. We had a slight credit crunch. It looked the economy was going that way. The Fed backed off. They said, oh, we did we did the job we needed to do. And, you know, the great inflation ensued. Um, and I so I think I think we get a mild recession. And I think it's maybe, you know, one, one and a half percent GDP peak to trough. But it gets the unemployment rate up to five, five and a half. And once the unemployment rate gets over four, maybe over to, up to four and a half percent, the Fed will start cutting very rapidly, uh, like they always do. You know, the old story, they go, you know. Up the rate hikes go up the escalator and down the elevator. And uh, there's no reason this Fed's given every indication um, that they would do the same when you consider that the funds rate against current inflation, which depending on your measures running around the mid fours, is still only in real terms half of what they consider to be tight. So uh, yet they want to pause here, which tells you that they're very concerned about recession, which tells you once it happens and unemployment goes up, they'll be very quick to ease. Stephen, when it comes to the inflation story, and this is the, the stubborn part we're watching very closely, what metrics need to change? Because we've been talking a lot about the elevation still in food prices, the housing shelter component, even though house prices have flipped, we're still seeing pressure in that area of the economy. Uh, the wage side, obviously, a whole ton of data coming out this week. Uh, that wage price spiral has been very evident. And then we've seen that really fueling the services part of the economy. Which parts here, though, are the most relevant and getting ahead of the inflation story quickly? Well, I think the most relevant gets to labor. You know, I think that uh, 
my, my old boss a hundred years ago, Henry Kaufman, once said when I said, "Well, it's this bit of CPI, that bit of CPI," and he said, "Stephen, when you look back over time, you're not going to remember any of that, and all you're going to remember and see is the behavior of inflation against the metrics that determine inflation." And when you're at three and a half percent unemployment and you have very tight labor markets, you're not going to alleviate inflation until you get to everyone's got their best guess. The Fed is telling you it's four and a half percent is neutral. Others, including myself, but others that have a lot smarter than me are thinking five and a half percent. But we know that it's higher than three and a half. And until you get the unemployment rate up, you know, there's a limit to how far inflation is going to come down. Another way you could end it because you still have an overhang of savings. You still have a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system. Um, and you, you have higher costs of living where when you look at what's happened to real wages over the last few years, as high as they've been in the nominal terms, they're still behind in real terms. And so there's a lot of catch up and that keeps folding on each other. So you really don't break all of this, unfortunately, uh, until you get until you get a recession. And the way to think about it is that you had a um, two things run up prices. You had a price increase due to all the shortages and issues that uh, we've all talked about a lot. Uh, most of those have come off, and now you're stuck at around 4.5%. Maybe, maybe you can just drift to 35 or so, but the idea that you're going to get back to 2 without raising unemployment is a fiction. And I don't know which bit or piece of CPI is going to be most contributing to that or not. It's just the overall tightness of the economy uh, is just not going to allow 2% inflation to, to reemerge until unemployment goes up. A moment ago, you were talking about the liquidity squeeze and what that did back in 2018. You know, if we revisit areas of the economy that were hard hit, there was a real snap back for the uh, tech stocks. They were very much hard hit from some of the high levels that they were, they were reaching for, but all markets effectively were impacted by that liquidity event. What happens this time round? Because you've already had the Dow coming back in recent um, trades of the last couple of months, but the NASDAQ has been reaching for further territory. Is that the one that poses the most risk in, amid a liquidity squeeze? Yeah, well, I think, yes. Uh, the short answer to your question is yes. I think that the tech sector... Uh, has been, is, and if you look beyond how the market's reacting um, to the tech stocks and mostly to NVIDIA and, and to AI, uh, which I think is a real thing, by the way, whether NVIDIA, you know, holds the flag 10 years from now, just think of all the first movers in the internet and web scrapers and things like that going back to the early 90s and none of them are around anymore. So I don't think NVIDIA is disappearing, by the way, but it's, it, so you have to separate the trend, the fundamental economics versus the equity market. And the fundamental economics of the tech sector right now is this is a shrinking sector. Uh, when you look at unemployment, when you look at uh, uh, the increases or so drop in hiring, drop in job postings, increase in the layoffs in tech, um, because this is an area that has lived for the last really since 0809 that has lived and grown on a zero interest rate world. And it's been funded uh, through VCs and, and et cetera, uh, also on the calculus of essentially zero carry. And zero carry doesn't exist anymore. And it's not just a little bit doesn't exist, it's a lot of it doesn't exist. So this is the correction that needs to occur. 
And I think if you look through a lot of tech firms, and many of which, by the way, are private, they're not public, um, a lot of these firms, uh, they're finding out they're not in a growth industry anymore. They're in a cyclical business and they have to adjust. Salesforce is, is, is one from what I've read. So, you know, these are companies that, you know, they, they, they spent and they lived on a zero carry world in the belief that they were in a growth industry and they ran their businesses that way. Now they're discovering that there's real cost to carry and also that they're in a cyclical business and it's a painful adjustment. Look, when you only have a 1% recession, just to be clear, this is a very, very big, diverse country, yeah. very big, diverse economy. And a one, one and a half percent peak to trough, there's large swaths of industries and regions of this country that won't even notice that we've been in a recession. Right. Uh, so it's the, every recession is in 2008, 2009. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate your commentary. Stephen Blitz with us, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard. Total deposits in U.S. banks declined by 2.5% or $472 billion in the first quarter this year, according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It's the largest decline since the FDIC began collecting data in 1984 and primarily driven by outflows in uninsured funds. German-EU harmonised consumer prices cooled more than expected in May, up 6.3% versus a year ago, against expectations for a jump of 6.8%. On the month, prices dipped to 0.2% in line with forecasts. Coming up on the show, security and energy resilience are key topics at the second meeting of the European political community. We'll be live in Moldova with more right after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Leaders of EU and some non-EU countries are gathering today for the second European Political Community Summit in Moldova. Peace and security as well as energy resilience and climate change are among the key topics at the meeting. Well, Sylvia joins us with more from Moldova. Sylvia, this is seen as a symbolic meeting, a ton of global leaders, mostly European of course, meeting just over the border from Ukraine. No doubt the war is going to be dominant as we talk about topics here. Exactly. And so I would like to start by explaining you the geography, really, because that's important for to understand, really, why so many leaders are gathering here today. So essentially, we are a 40 minute drive away from the capital city of Moldova, Chisinau, and just a 30 minute drive from the closest border point with Ukraine. So we're quite close to Ukraine in the eastern part of Moldova. And also, and in this context, I asked my colleagues to show you a map so you can better 
visualize where we are today. We're also just eight kilometers away from this region of Transnistria, which is a separatist, separatist region and is Russia controlled. And this is important to understand with the dynamics here in Moldova, because this essentially highlights really some of the complexity and the hard in terms of dealing and how hard it is in terms of dealing with politics here. But in this context, though, we're hearing that the European Commission, yesterday the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, arrived here in Moldova and she made further commitments, really, in terms of how the EU is looking to help Moldova, a country that is keen to join the EU. Let's take a look at what she had to say yesterday. Earlier this month, the European Union agreed a 40 million euro package for Moldova to finance <coughs> military supplies and strengthen your armed forces, including through technical training. Now we want to further increase the European Peace Facility support to Moldova. We clearly see, dear Maya, how Russia is trying to destabilize Moldova with hybrid actions. So we are stepping up our support to increase your resilience against Russia's hybrid threats. We've just launched a partnership mission to provide you with strategic advice on crisis management and hybrid threats, for instance, cybersecurity <coughs> and countering foreign interference. So Moldova has also been heavily impacted, really, by this Russia invasion of Ukraine. There's been an economic shock here. They're dealing with a lot of refugees as well. And on top of that, let's not forget, there have been missiles also hitting the territory of Moldova. So it's within this context that we're seeing almost 50 heads of state from all over the European continent joining here, gathering here in Moldova. And they are trying to send a message to the president of Russia that the whole continent is united. And in that sense, both Russia and Belarus are isolated in this, in a, since that invasion of Ukraine. So you can expect that the main focus of the conversations here will naturally be on security. And within that context, we're also expecting the president of Ukraine to gather, to join some of the leaders here as well. And it will be important to see what he has to say, particularly after the French president said yesterday that he is actually quite keen on uh, forming a path for Ukraine to join the defense alliance. So there's a lot at stake here. And one of the benefits really of this gathering is that it is quite informal. So all of the heads of state will have quite a lot of time for bilateral and trilateral conversations. And they believe that will actually be beneficial in achieving what they want in terms of foreign policy. So let's see in a couple of hours time when the leaders arrive here, what sort of message they will have for all of us. Sylvia, let, let me ask you a, a slightly different question, and that is the one about the uh, events we've witnessed in recent days in Moscow and the attacks on some uh, residential buildings and the way that the government has responded and how President Putin is again trying to use this as some form of justification for stepping up attacks on Kyiv. To what extent do you think this may figure in the conversations? Do you think some European leaders will be looking for clarification from Zelensky as to what role the Ukrainian government actually had in those actions, if any at all? Because in the past, um, I think we're all aware that some European leaders have gone a bit wobbly at the knees at the thought of Ukraine taking military action 
to Russian territory. No doubt that will also feature in these conversations, Jeff, particularly if even if it's just from the journalists. That was one of the open questions really that we have for President Zelensky if indeed he arrives here this morning, because we still don't know what sort of role Ukraine, if at all, had in terms of those attacks that have been reported in uh, Russian soil. But we know that from a European perspective and from a NATO perspective, there's no support whatsoever for that to happen. In the sense that there's fears of a broader war. So, so far, the support from the EU, the support from NATO has been for Ukraine to defend itself in its own territory. And that's unlikely to change. But indeed, let's see what sort of comment we'll gather from the leaders within that context. But no doubt, that is one of the main open questions that we have here this morning. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.